we can all participate in as much or as little as we want to. Hello and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us and we've got an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala, and today we are talking with Amy Whitcroft, Open Data Establishment Lead at the New Zealand Transport Agency and co-founder of GovWorks NZ. Welcome, Amy. Hello. Kia ora. (laughs) Kia ora. So congrats on the new role. How does it feel? Uh, So far, it's wonderful. I, I, I lost count, I think, at about day 11. So I'm probably somewhere up at day 14. And it's 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 extraordinary. I feel very honored to be there. Amazing. Well, we are definitely going to get into that a bit more and ask you some more detailed questions um, and find out what that's like. Um, but we just, we love to start our show with finding a, a little bit about the people that we're speaking to and how you kind of got into your career. Um, and one thing I gather from the research that we did on you is that you're a very proud New Zealander. Um, so could you could you give us a bit of a sense of what it was like growing up and what got you interested um, from a kind of career perspective early on? Yeah, so I've got a little bit of a, a, a story, I guess, as, as we all do, a multivariate story on this one. I was born in South Africa um, and grew up there. I came to New Zealand about a decade ago. I'm in my mid-30s now. Um, and, and, you know, went through the entire process from a working holiday visa through to citizenship uh, now, which is an extraordinary honor to, to be able to be a part of this country, especially in light of recent events. Um, how, how I ended up in the public sector again, it was not something that I thought much about when I was young and, and went through a process from studying molecular biology and then postgrad business through management consultancy and market research and in South Africa and also England and then came here and found work as a science communicator and over the years as my interest in government and tech have become more of a thing I I became I guess what I'd call a government communicator (laughs) Um, so so plain plain language communicator of, of these kinds of concepts and then came across the open data and open government movements and discovered uh, my Taranga Waiwai to some extent, which is a beautiful New Zealand term for, uh, the, the way I describe it is the place where one's soul feels at rest. It's normally used for land. And uh, discovered that open data and, and open government and what I call open X, so that's open source, open access, all of these things that are around transparency and sharing were a place where I felt very comfortable and where I thought I could maybe be of use. Um, and, and use my skills and my talents and, and have been going ever since then. It's a few years now and, and I'm just embedding further and further into it. And I recently moved into the countryside as well, which is kind of beautiful too in terms of thinking about how, how we live lightly but transparently and openly. That's super interesting. Thank you. And we did actually spot in your kind of potted history that you, you studied science at university and that that was in South Africa. And it really was was quite clear that your passion for science has has lived on. And something which really piqued my interest was, what's the Martian Trust? 
That's extraordinary. So that's uh, a, a chap called Charles Polk, um, a, a wonderful American who, if you ever get to chat with him, do chat with him. He's got the most wonderful stories because he's been part of the, the space industry in the States for a couple of decades. But um, yeah, so the Martian Trust is all about democratizing getting to Mars. Um at the moment, there's a, a, a term which I really love, the, the Billionaire's Boy Club, something like that. But currently getting to Mars is very much uh, something that a couple of people are working on. We've got tons of money and resources, but it kind of leaves the rest of us out. And so the Martian Trust, saying uh, there are a whole bunch of very interesting and gnarly scientific issues in not only getting to Mars, but any kind of presence on Mars itself. And let's put it out to people who want to join in and, and start working through those things together. Um, and he decided that the Martian Trust was best homed in New Zealand uh, for a number of very sensible reasons. And I was one of the people who was fortunate enough to, to be asked to join in on setting that up. Subsequently, unfortunately, I became a little bit busy and, and had to put that aside. But I've heard from him recently and, you know, he's pivoting a little bit as one does and, and looking at ways for it to be more optimal for people's needs. And it's a beautiful dream, you know, is, is we can all be involved in getting to Mars. That's incredible. Um, how absolutely inspiring. And it, I mean, it sounds like the kind of shift of power dynamics is, is something quite common to the conversations that we have on this show in, in any area. And what more sort of inspirational space to do that in than literal space so that's that's really cool right i should probably tell people that i watch a lot of star trek (laughs) (laughs) um so amy as you alluded to there you've had lots of different jobs over the years and they've led you into kind of new and different areas so we're i'm kind of interested do you do you really enjoy learning about new specialisms and and what advice would you give to people thinking about changing role or discipline i do enjoy learning new things i'm a, a rampant neophile uh, which basically means i'm like oh this is very interesting i'm totally going to ooh new shiny so i have attention issues <laughs> i really enjoy it i i think that the world that we live in both cognitively and, and physically, is, is a fascinating one. And, and there's so, so much that we still don't understand, including how to get along with each other. Um, I'm sure we all battle with that sometimes. <clears throat> the advice that I would give to people thinking about changing roles or just even looking into the future of work, which is a fascinating area of study that's expanding at the moment, is that if, if one can maintain a sense of curiosity, one will generally be fine, rather than looking at change as something of which to be scared and it's something that's potentially threatening, one can instead choose to dive into it, you know, clothing and all <laughs> in the deep end and go, ah, this is interesting. I want to know more about it. There will always be kind people who will welcome one. And with, you know, the the, the onset of AI and machine learning and, and, you know, the robots coming to get us, which is not true, but is a story that's sold a lot. One of the things that is not easily replaceable with automated anything is human curiosity and human nuance. So if one can remain curious and nuanced, I think one is going to be just fine. And kind, kind, kind is such a thing. Speaking of finding new things and diving straight in, clothes and all, you become really well known for your leadership and in open data, particularly in the New Zealand government. 
and also with your involvement in the International Open Data Charter. Can you tell us a little bit about what that collaboration aims to achieve? So the, the Open Data Charter, or, and this is great, Fadafun says it with a bit of a Kiwi accent, the Open Data Charter, <laughs> which is just so much fun to say, um, is, is an international, as you say, a collaboration with tens and tens and tens of national and uh, municipal governments around the world saying that open data is a thing that they think is important. Um, there's a set of beautiful principles around it. I do, if, if anybody's not read them, head, head over to the Open Data Charter website, which is all about you know how data should be essentially like fit for purpose, um, timely, comprehensive, all of these things. And the idea is just to ally people against the set of principles so they can start thinking about what their particular open data journey is. Also, I say data and data interchangeably. It's a thing, sorry. <laughs> and why they're interested in open data, um, different people are for different reasons. One of the core concepts is is uh, open by default. So the idea that unless there is a good reason to keep uh, a data set or a database or whatever it is, some, some data private, one should be open. And there are very strong reasons to keep all kinds of data private, uh, generally around privacy and respect for, for humans and compassion. But for the rest of it is if, if it can be open, let's think about having it open just by default as something that we build into our business processes and build into the paradigms of our organization. That is tricky. Uh, we understand that, especially because opening data does take. So one of the corollary concepts to that that I'm, I, I'm really behind as well is publish with purpose. So if one's trying to think about where to start is let's release data sets that we know that people really want, that we know that people want to do big things with, which tend to be around things like weather, transport, government spending. It very much depends on the country. <clears throat> this year, the Open Data Charter is focusing on a couple of areas there, closing the gender pay gap and tackling corruption, which are great international issues um, and, and really sort of powerful ones that people can get behind. And fortunately, I have been elected to be on the board, which means, I guess, that I get to opine at people from, from New Zealand sometimes, which is a, a great honour and privilege. <laughs> Wow, that's awesome. It's so good to hear about those principles about publishing uh, data with a purpose and around closing the gender pay gap being a core goal um, of that data this year. I think that's incredibly timely given what's been going on. So yeah, that's really impressive to hear. And talking about you being on the board there, we noticed uh, from our research that you have a lot of side hustles. You organize and volunteer loads of events, including Nerd Night Wellington, GovHack Wellington, and the New Zealand open source community. How do you keep that all going without burning out? <laughs> that's, that's the thing, is I've burnt out. <laughs> So at at the moment I've put my side hustles aside so that I can focus on my current role with with all of my energy. It is a tricky one, and I'm I'm sure many of your listeners will understand is that there are so many things to love and want to support, but especially I guess as one gets a little older, it's important to try and figure out how to balance it all. It helps I guess that that you know I'm a rampant and proud spinster. I don't have to I guess worry about the time in terms of kids and things like that who are wonderful but take a lot of time and energy but yes yeah, so I've got a problem not a problem I guess a solution with that that shiny thing that I alluded to earlier 
is I generally want to help out with stuff. So if somebody's doing something cool, my first response is generally like, oh my God, how can I help? Uh, and that's ended up over the years in, in doing wonderful things, as you say, and, and working on various community initiatives and starting groups and, and, and hosting events and things like that. But um, currently I have put most of them aside, at least for a period of a couple of months. Absolutely fair enough. I think one of the coolest things about building communities actually is that at some points you can kind of say, oh, you know, I need to step back for a bit and hope that they continue without you necessarily needing to be there. But yeah, burnout is real, so you have to watch out for it. Yeah, and I think and I think we go through it, and, and most most of the people that I know do go through burnout. But I find again with that kindness, people will step up to the plate. Or, and this is something that I, I say to people as well, if something needs you and only you, we don't have to have things live in perpetuity. Some things have their time and their place. But people are generally very kind and go, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, life's important. Do your thing. We'll see you on the flip side. Yeah, amen to that. And one of the things we were doing whilst we were researching was watching a few videos of you at big speaking events. Um, I think public speaking is something that a lot of our guests do, but something that a lot of people also want to try and improve. Can you give us some top tips for public speaking? (laughs) I I don't always get it right, in all fairness. I would argue that or at least the feedback that I've had from people is, is enthusiasm is infectious. If you care about your subject matter, you can get with just about everything, including sometimes having a tech fail and sort of having to riff over the top of things and make it up on the spot. But you know, know, know what you're talking about. Know the points that you want to make. And I guess the big thing is, is um, and it's horrible marketing jargon, so I will apologize, but what is your call to action? And then all of the common stuff, like know and love your topic. And, and if you're talking about something that you don't deeply love and know about, consider changing it to something you do know and love and want to talk about. You know, if, if you bore people at, or, or end up buttonholing people at conferences or dinner parties or whatever about a subject, that's probably the thing you want to be talking about. Can you all hear me? Oh. Yeah. Oh, and I, oh, hello, can you hear me? Oh, cool. Also, and I did want to say um, a, a friend recently introduced me to something called beautiful.ai, which is a lovely way to make slides as well. So if people want to you know, try something a wee bit different with one's images, which is also really important. Absolutely. I saw something on Twitter this week, which I'm, I'm sure was going around the houses, which was, what could you talk about for 30 minutes without any preparation? And I thought that was a really cool idea. So moving on to kind of some some bigger ideas that we saw you were interested in. We saw your amazing uh, speech recently about smarter and kinder cities, and you mentioned kindness earlier. So you, you shared some principles for how to implement smart cities, essentially. And I know you said you've been kind of doing a bit of traveling and touring, talking about that as well. So for our listeners who are interested in smart cities, and I'm sure they all are, what are some of the things you think that we should be thinking about when we're developing our urban environments? Uh, I, I think one of the big things that I like to harp on about is, is again, that idea of openness. So as we think about smart cities, um, I think there's a tendency at the moment to, and again, this is horrible jargon, but to solutionize, to think that smart cities is all about tech. Um, and, and to some extent it is, but let us beware the large vendors who want to come in and wire up our cities with cameras and microphones and sensors everywhere. And think about what, what do smart cities really mean for us? The idea is that there are cities that 
work better for, I think, all of the life, not just the human life in them. Some of that will be around efficiencies and, and things like that, you know, traffic being less horrible and, and all of that sort of thing. But it's going to differ for each city, I, I strongly believe, as, as to what a smart city really looks like. And certainly before we start adding cameras and microphones to everything, let us think about, do we want to be living in a surveillance system, for example? And, and let's fight back if necessary. Uh, I don't think there are many bad actors in the system. I think that people just tend to run towards tech and money as a way to fix extent issues where sometimes the issues may be a lot more sort of human, I guess, and involve more talking and connection. And that gets back to the openness uh, that I mentioned earlier is, is if we are, and as we develop smart cities, I believe it's very strongly important for them to be open. So the code that we develop around these things, I believe, should be open. The algorithms that we're using to help us decide how to do everything, I guess, from route traffic to possibly make political decisions, those should all be open. Let's use open source code and let's use open source platforms. Let us try and be as transparent as possible. I think that that is what a truly smart city is, is something that we can all participate in as much or as little as we want to. Definitely. That idea of participatory, you know, democracy or environments is is something we've we've really been interested in here. And you speaking about the, the kind of humanity of these big questions um, probably leads us nicely on to, to our other thought, which we were going to put to you, which is in terms of One Team Gov. So, of course, this is the One Team Gov show, and we're super interested in hearing how the community is growing around the world. And given that this is sort of burgeoning in New Zealand, and we've seen that you've been involved in some of that, how's it going? Uh, so far, it seems to be going brilliantly. Uh, so for our listeners, there's a One Team Gov movement starting in Wellington. Uh, Wellington is the capital city of New Zealand and where most of central government sits, or at least in the largest numbers and amount. Um, and Wellington is tiny for the listeners who don't know that, so quite strongly connected. People are, I think, really enjoying the honesty of some of the conversations as they find out that, you know, possibly they're not alone in some of the frustrations that they have but also the potential that they see. And one of the things that they're doing, for example, is also thinking about what works best for people. So some people can't make breakfasts, um, uh, some people can't make lunches. So they're looking into a format, you know, that, that maximizes that uh, and, and what works for, for Wellington. But unfortunately, I haven't been able to make them because either I've been away or something so far. But I've, I've seen colleagues come back fairly glowing with how positive they felt as they walked out of their one team gov meeting, which is, is just the most wonderful thing. I think building those communities um, and those networks and communities of practice is, is unbelievably important, not only for people who work in government, but of course for everybody else, because government is all of us. Or we, we can and should, I would argue, all take part in government more than just once every whatever one's election cycle is when we put in a ballot. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of speaking of small communities that have a lot of fun, um, one of the more interesting facts that we discovered when we were um, researching you was that you're one of the few women who have driven the entire Mongol um, rally, which is which for the listeners is 11,000 miles from the UK to Mongolia 
and raised thousands of um, dollars for charity. Can you tell us what that was like? Ah, it was mad. Yeah, so it's about a third of the Earth's circumference. So we drove, uh, yeah, 11,000 Ks in about three weeks. Um, I essentially just drove for 12 hours a day um, at an average speed of 50 kilometers an hour over the course of it, which you, you can imagine there's <laughs> a huge variance there. Um, and it all started out because uh, just uh, basically I wanted to do something mad before I was 30 because moving countries hadn't been enough um, several times. So and, and wanted to do the Trans-Sahara Rally. And then that was shut down for you know political instability reasons, which is totally fair. And came across the Mongol rally and thought, that sounds like a remarkably stupid and therefore fun thing to do. So I did it with a then partner at the time. And it was, it was extraordinary. Much as, well, you can imagine my, my memories are mostly of driving and sleeping. But just, just to see some of those countries, I mean, we went 5,000 kilometers through Russia in an almost straight line, west to east. <laughs> driving on Russian highways is, is quite an experience. Um, and driving in Moscow and Elambator, I would I would suggest is not for the faint of heart. And of course, driving across Mongolia and the steppes was an amazing experience. If nothing else, there aren't really roads for large parts of it. But um, the the beauty is stunning. And we we took and made time lapse videos of each of legs: Europe, Russia, uh, and then Mongolia, just to try and give people a sense of how much the landscape changes and how big it is and how wide and strange the world is and and at the same time people keep on being people you know they'll have differences and and cultural differences and whatnot but you can have an amazing discussion over a bottle of homemade you know vodka essentially with people you share no language with and still understand each other perfectly Uh, so it was it was an extraordinary experience i've thoroughly recommend it to people if you want to challenge yourself um you won't end up in sticky situations unless you do something really stupid for the most part. But uh, it, it certainly cured me of my my dislike of camping. <laughs> and it took me a couple of weeks to get used to, you know, lose and electricity again afterwards. <laughs> it was great. I was like, oh, my God, hot water and lights. Wow. <laughs> and the stories, of course. At the end of it, uh, we were one of the first teams to finish and – and there's a bar at the end of it, and we, we sat in for a couple of weeks and just, you know, made some some of my best friends I made on the Bongo Rally. And, and just hearing people's hilarious stories as they came through of the adventures they'd had was wonderful. Yeah, sounds like such an adventure. Also, that must make driving through New Zealand seem like an absolute breeze. <laughs> Uh, certainly long distances don't freak me out. Um, I, you know, I do want to say to the listeners and, and things that the safety things about don't drive for more than four hours, there are for very, very good reasons. I'm a little different cause I'm like, <laughs> honey, please. But, uh, New Zealand's got its own interesting situation in that, you know, our biggest highways are, are often only two lanes, one each way. And we've got some very windy roads, but, uh, yes, yeah, certainly. It, it, I, I developed a love of driving in South Africa and that's carried me through my life and it's definitely a part of who I am. The, the freedom of it, you know, being able, if one's fortunate enough to have a car, to get in the car and go is uh, quite something. Of course, the temptation then is always to keep going. Uh, Maybe that's why you moved to New Zealand because there's, there's an end at the end. 
what well, true what does start to drive into the sea after a while but um yeah it's 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 a beautiful place here it's very interesting but yeah completely different to you know the big wide open skies of of the large continents and you mentioned earlier that you recently moved to the countryside what is it like living in the new zealand wilds well, I, I live in a tiny town. It's, you know, I'm not fully out in the countryside, which is why I have things like internet that mostly works. So I live in rural New Zealand for, for people interested in a tiny little town called Carterton, population about 5,000 people. <laughs> uh, and it's it's extraordinary. It's it's quiet, except for the cows yelling in the background because it's uh, that time of year for the boy cows, apparently. It's, it's wonderful, and, and I get to spend a couple of hours a day when I go into work in Wellington on a train and and watch you know the world go by and watch the scenery go by it's just absolutely wonderful i recommend it to everybody if if one likes the quiet life um if one doesn't well there's there's not much to do out here other than you know garden and drink wine and look at one's trees <laughs> sounds beautiful as as someone who's come from very fortunately that kind of upbringing um i think my direction at the moment is towards a city but i do, i do wonder whether towards my later life i might return to my um countryside route so that's that's definitely inspired me <laughs> um so we we'd love to wrap up the show with getting some recommendations from you about cool things that we should be interested in and, and learn more about um so could you start us off by recommending a podcast apart from this one of course that we should listen to well, this one, of course, is uh, <laughs> really amazing. This is always going to be tricky. Um, if nothing else, for the listeners, I don't think in lists very well. I tend to think in networks. And I do have a, a list of podcasts that I listen to. I'm happy to share with people. But I would suggest that 99% Invisible is an extraordinary podcast. Are you all familiar with it? No, not that one. Tell us a bit more. Ah, yeah, it's it's an American podcast, and Roman Mars, who also has the best name ever, Roman Mars, and one of the most mellifluous voices I've ever come across. So obviously, I love it. Um, and it's it's about design, but it's it's very sort of deep and broad in that, and it's about the world around us and the things that we don't necessarily notice. And and I just can't recommend it enough. It is absolutely fascinating. One of my favorite episodes is about neon. It's an episode called Two Benders, and about neon lights and which are almost uh, never made anymore properly. Uh, there's an entire, for those people who are sartorially inclined, there's a, a wonderful sort of mini-series in it, which is all about clothing. There's an episode devoted to pockets and an episode devoted to punk and an episode devoted to plaid and things. So, so I would suggest that that is amazing. Um, worthy other mentions are, of course, Radiolab, which is also for anybody who's interested in the world around them, stunning. And if one has an interest in politics, I would suggest On the Media, which is also absolutely brilliant wow you've massively over delivered thank you for the the plethora of recommendations no that's great you'll add to our growing list and how about a twitter account we should follow um i would suggest following the twitter account of a person called derek alton uh, spelled the way you you think um who's part of the canadian government um and is very interested in collaboration um, across the world and in the tools and systems we use to do that in an open government. But as a general rule, if one looks for the tweet hashtagged GC collab, that is a great place to start. So a lot of, uh, and, and there are too many people again to name, but um, a, a lot of Canadian 
civil servants are doing absolutely wonderful things around sort of kindness and collaboration and future of work and, and all of these things. And they're just delightful. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I worked in Canada last year for CDS, so um, I, I know plenty of the people that you're re- referring to there. So I'm completely supportive. Yeah, that was a really good recommendation. They're, they're so lovely. <laughs> they are. And if one wants like happy heart feels and to sort of flap with joy and enthusiasm, I suggest that, you know, Canadian civil servants are often a good place to start. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, they, they really embody the stereotype in all the best ways. They are the loveliest of people. <laughs> Awesome. Um, and how about a book we should read, fiction or nonfiction? Ah, uh, again, this is, you know, I'm going to try not to list you off a hundred things as I start, but I was having a think about it. I would suggest in terms of nonfiction, and as since I've been talking about smart cities, there's a book called Smart Cities, and then it's got a very big, long subtitle, which I won't bother with, but by a chap called Anthony M. Townsend. And I think that that should be basically a Bible or something but required reading it's it's a beautiful piece of work he contextualizes urbanism and cities in general and then looks into what uh, smart cities is in in various places in various ways and how we could and should possibly think about it the ups and the downs it's it's a beautiful piece of writing um in terms of non-fiction i would suggest the culture novels by ian m banks any of them they're all great but if one wants to just expand one's worldview a little bit and possibly have a little bit of a giggle um they're great definitely agree with both of those the the former sounds like a bit more of a sort of intellectual read and we can we can do more in depth with this second so thank you and finally a charity or social enterprise you'd recommend we support uh well the first thing that i would suggest is in fact listening to something called the seeds podcast uh, which comes to the website it's based here in new zealand um, and uh, Steve Moe or Stephen Loeb is behind it. He's a lawyer down in Christchurch. And the Seeds podcast, he talks to various social enterprises all around the country. So that would be a fantastic way to discover what kind of social enterprise really, uh, I guess, lights one's fire. But uh, there are a couple here in New Zealand. They're mostly around things like, um, you know, you buy a lunch and then somebody else gets a lunch. I really like that because uh, poverty is an issue here, of course, and, and people having access to household food. And on, on the feminist front, um, there are increasing uh, people out here who also do things like provide sanitary uh, stuff for young women to schools and things like that. So, you know, you, you buy your box of tampons or pads or whatever, organic cotton, and a box goes to a young woman who maybe doesn't have access to a costly item like that, which enables her to do things like go to school. So, so those are all absolutely extraordinary. But yeah, it's uh, social enterprises, I would say. In New Zealand, we're not quite where the UK is on, on social enterprise in terms of the size of the sector, but it's definitely becoming a thing, which again is why I suggest that people get involved with the, the Seeds podcast and website um, and find ways to support. That's great to hear. And maybe we'll play a small part in that, in that industry growing because that'd be good. And finishing on a feminist note, I'm always uh, very pro, so thank you. <laughs> So, Amy, listen, thank you so much for chatting with us. You've really shared your your energy and your passion across across science and the humanities and your reflections on rebalancing the power in you know open data, smart cities and, and plenty of others have, have really brought a lot of things to think about and also loads of fun to our show with all of your adventures. So thank you so much. 
Thank you so much. It was an absolute honor to be on this show. Um, thank you so much. Wonderful women. Wow. So Kylie, what do you think about that? What an incredibly passionate and just generally overexcited person to chat to. It was so much fun talking to Amy and it it really felt like me that energy for stuff across the spectrum of science and humanities really, really came through. And there wasn't a moment in the in the show where I wasn't thinking, wow, you know, I, I feel like I could have a conversation with you on this for hours. Like she had probably a hundred of those things that she could speak about for 30 minutes um, without any preparation or scripting. So yeah, it was just, it was a brilliant conversation to have. What did you think? Yeah, absolutely. I loved how she described herself as a government communicator and translator. And you could really tell that from the interview Uh, It struck me that that is a real theme of all the people that we interview, that they're not just technically strong, but they're also able to build communities and really act as that translation layer. And Amy really stood out as one of those people. And also, it just seemed crazy to me that Amy felt comfortable working as that translation layer in one of the most complicated and expansive areas to work in, which is open data and open source. And that's a real testament to her skills. Yeah, definitely. And her confidence came through as well when she was talking about public speaking. And I I loved how practical her advice was for for people trying to grow into that communication role. You could really tell that she had that background in content design and kind of wordsmithing. And the the simple way that she described things about understanding your audience and, you know, getting your message across was brilliant. Um, And I think what all of that came back to for me was a, a really strong sense of humble leadership and whenever she spoke about projects that she'd done or or people that she'd worked with she always said it as you know I was lucky enough to do this or I was fortunate enough to work with that person and yeah that that humility was was lovely to hear what did you reckon about her work on smart cities yeah it was really interesting what she said about smart cities and so timely because she talked about how we have to develop our cities to be essentially inclusive and make sure that we don't accidentally slip into a surveillance state. And anyone who listens to this podcast probably knows that San Francisco has just come out and banned facial recognition cameras. So it was a really timely conversation to have. And one of the points that I love that she made in that section was around how people often run to technology because talking and creating consensus amongst people is a really hard thing to do. And I think that that is a theme that we see a lot everywhere, this idea that technology is going to fix issues that are actually problems with the human condition and so need a more human intervention. That was just a really nice way of putting it. And it's really nice to hear about how that's being considered on the macro city level and not just at the product level that we tend to work in. Definitely. And kind of building on that point, she again came back to it a theme that we've heard from quite a few of our guests recently around technology rebalancing power structures and how important it is to not perpetuate the existing conditions that exist in society, but to use things like open source to to do things like decision making and have that be 
really transparent and you know she she talked in one of her blog posts about policy needing to be not black box and really by process of transparency is just a step towards having a more democratized way of doing things and it really reminded me of some of what we spoke to Arik and Aya about as well and that kind of broad societal impact that technology can have and that we should embrace that in the purest sense and make sure that we're using it towards good ends rather than just reinforcing the way that the structures have always existed. So I I loved that part of it. Yeah, and I thought that that also linked back to what she said about publishing data with a purpose. I think a lot of the time when government tries to make data open, it just sort of dumps endless spreadsheets into places that no one looks. But she talked about how you know, as part of the open data charter, they actually look for problems that are happening in society and try and give data associated with that. So things like the gender pay cap, climate change, etc. And I thought that that was really cool. And just another example of, you know, how you can use technology to be more open, but actually be more purposeful in being open as well. Definitely, yeah. the The gender pay gap was always going to set off signals on our side to be to be really supportive of that work, and it's really timely here in the UK as well as as a lot of organisations like mine are re reporting on their gender pay gap, and we're seeing for the first time how that compares to previous years and what progress has been made. And whilst I don't think that by any stretch we're going quickly enough or even in the right direction in a lot of cases, just that transparency in itself and and using that data for good was a really nice check back into into that stuff and probably the most adventurous and fun way to end a show ever what what did you reckon of her driving yeah i love that story about her adventure driving across the entire of the well basically half the world um yeah breaking news my wife caitlin recently passed her driving test a few weeks ago and honestly it was one of the happiest days of my life because i hate driving so much so i was really taken aback by the idea that anyone could drive for 12 hours a day and have such adventures and camp and stuff like that is it was really inspirational actually it made me want to get out and explore more myself yeah, definitely. That should be a good prompt for me because I have also not learned to drive. So I'll um, I'll probably try and give my girlfriend a break as well and get on that sometime this summer. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> and that's it from the One Team Gov Show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.